Welcome to the Hallucination Cafe. I'd like to take you on a journey to an alternative reality, a world of fiction, of horror, of science that doesn't exist. I'm your host, Shelley Ann Wooderson. Welcome. If you're a first-time listener, glad to have you. If you've been following the podcast, welcome back. If you like the podcast, the best thing you can do is subscribe, like, tell your friends, and we'll try to get you some more stories to listen to. This story is by one of my favorite writers. Um, Her name's Desiree Matlock, and it's called Always. Today's orders arrive with nearly the same time-stamped photo of her as always. A proof of life, they call it. I stare into the glossy paper mockery of her, looking for clues, but I see nothing new. I turn to the letter, scan the words carefully to commit their contents to memory before placing this letter and likeness into a Ziploc bag, then a manila envelope, and, as I have done hundreds before it, I pop it down the building's mail chute. Later today, a messenger service will take it to Patrick, the forensic specialist and private eye that I have investigating each piece. He's meticulous, the best in New York, if not the world. Hiring him had been necessary, so I might learn more about who was holding her and myself by proxy, captive. I stare at the name on the sheet and the dry details of her life. Any person on the globe could be reduced to such a list of statistics. It tells me everything I need to know, but nothing, really. I stand and prepare by sliding a few bullets into my six-hour and stealing myself. Another day, another task. A brisk morning walk later and I was there. Glass office building, like a dozen others. Seventeen flights up to a two-story suite. And the code works. Of course, the question of who I work for aside... They certainly do meticulous research. In fairness to the man, I wait the usual length of time until he has recognised the danger, found his weapon and pulled the trigger before I squeezed lightly on mine. To anyone with an air shot, there would have been a single shot heard. A millisecond of delay given for the sake of sportsmanship makes a difference to none but me. The result is the same, however. The weapon in my hand releases its lethal projectile to whirl gracefully around his round, like a dance partner. Or perhaps more like a boxer evading a roundhouse. I may be more practiced, but it's not practice he lacks but knowledge. In the mere moments we knew each other, there is no way he could have learned the knowledge that my success rides on one key fact. His efforts cannot kill me. As his bullet invades my skull through my left orbital socket, the brass-encased round I sent his way is still flying. Moments after the left side of my head becomes mist, his heart has streamed outwards into a thousand tattered ribbons within his chest. He dies instantly, of course. I am thrown backwards, as any creature would with a 45mm round crashing full force into rend their soft tissue. I return to bleary consciousness mere moments later to find I have stumbled backwards over a railing. I am almost entirely broken for the moment. Most of my wounds stitch and heal as fast as I can assess the damage with a piquant rush. The agony of healing is as poignant a sensation as the pain that comes before it. I am seeing in two dimensions temporarily, so I pause, waiting for returned use of my face. The reason that pain is a useful weapon is that it is feared. 
I have no fears left, aside from losing her. I admit, though, that I dislike the needle-sharp excruciation of mending. Not enough to change my course of action. Does his heart still beat? I tilt my blasted head to listen with my good ear, feeling towards my still-knitting head wound with one hand while I yawn, resetting my jaw. No. Utter silence from the upper level of this sleek glass suite. Shaking my head and shoulders clear of shrapnel and bits of my own matter, already turning to dust, I stand and step with care across the shattered remains of railing and glass. All God's creatures must die. It is not his fault that I am not one of God's creatures. I am momentarily jealous of the crumpled, unmendable man upstairs. To be able to stop turning upon the wheel would be a precious thing. You seem like a decent fellow, I whisper, and nod my head in respect of the newly dead. The eye has taken a touch longer to heal, delicate complex tissue that it is. The world around me returns to three dimension in a vivid burst of colour. I am mended. I take the elevator back down, spend a moment to adjust my suit back to rights before I walk calmly out of doors. Strolling through the ubiquitous corporate plaza outside, it's like nothing has happened. I know better. Whose flame have I snuffed? Just a man. What was his name? He had one, but needs it no longer. Did he have a family? I never learned. Why was he chosen out for death? I'm in the dark as much as you are. I have no knowledge beyond my task, beyond that stretched eon of a moment when his eyes widen, when he recognises his fate. This particular man dealt with it better than some. But what use has he for a name now? It will only be useful to Patrick, whom I have entrusted with finding common threads between my victims. So far, no luck. Nothing that defies statistical probability. I try not to cheapen this man's death by hoping his name will lead me closer to learning who I am aiding. I am sent where I am sent. I do as my endless, insistent master commands. In this I have no choice. I am a fool, for I am Tristan, Romeo, Paris, and some blasted, calculating fool has taken my Isolde, my Juliet, my Helen, my immortal, beloved Cassie. If I could end my own life to save hers, I would have done so long ago. But I stopped attempting to die a millennia ago. It's madness to continue to try to do the impossible. Cassie helped me see that. I consider my options for feeding myself. The healing process always begets a powerful hunger. Perhaps I should have taken the essence of the man I was sent to kill. My string puller has expressed a dislike for when I feed on an assignment, or, as it was put, they would prefer to resolve the situation in as sterile as possible a manner. What happens to Cassie when I fall out of line is far from sterile. Besides, the man I just killed didn't deserve any additional indignities. If it wasn't for how often I get hurt, I wouldn't need to feed very often. I've long since learned to quell the thirst, but I get blasted open every few days, bludgeoned, shot slashed, I need a lot more sustenance than I used to. I decide to hold back my lust until I get home to my own icebox. I will have plenty of plasma there, and I do not wish to wait before I read the day's messenger delivery. No news again. Disappointed. 
I'm sibilant. There is no point in wakefulness without another letter, another chance to find Cassie. In dreams, I recall the path that led me to her, the footfalls I know too well, a memory only slightly altered with repetition and slumber. I surged wide-eyed and crazed into the inner chamber of a hewn cavern, a pile of priests behind me. One of them bleeds still. I am bewildered, ravenous, and cannot explain my increasing hunger. The scrap of myself that retains logic knows that the presence of true magic has unexpectedly awakened the beast in me. I glare at the innocence of the virgin before me as she sways on tiptoes. One fingertip extends towards me, holding me suddenly at bay as one remaining servant priest cowers, white robes soiled in fear. A thin, childlike voice speaks in a shrill whisper. It chills even me. Lysander, calm yourself. I take a deep breath and attempt to follow the command of the sylph before me. As my vision writhes and keens, I realize what I have done. I am sorry. I never intended. Never, young prince? She tisks at me eyes narrowing. Seek to live with truth, Lysander. You must remember to prepare yourself better for the next time you visit the sacred place. I will not have you killing another. I won't return. I will be dead. I must be dead. She laughs oddly like a mad crone too many years gone. Can the oracle go mad? Can she remain sane? You will return, my prince, and you will kill the sacred once again. But sheath yourself short of the girl, for she has more to do than you can know. Her black curls writhe in the light as clouded eyes wander around the cave, gathering knowledge from the rocks. I try to follow what she sees, but only find walls of white battered stone, blackened by the oil of the lamps that twist and deforms our shadows and hide the dimensions and depths of an airy mist rising from the crevice at the centre of this cavern. I will not leave Delphi until I know. Then what is your question, my child, my valiant, my murderer? What must you know from your oracle? I took a deep breath, stilled myself. How can I die? She spoke to no one, least of all me. So it wants to die. Why? And the answer was there. None. Her cloudy eyes roamed wild around the room, rolled back in her head as she rose and ceased rocking, tiny frame hovering impossibly on the tips of a few toes. Nothing changes, child. I see only so far. I only see what possible fates might arise from this moment forward. Her head rocked back, looking nearly behind her. I rushed to her, fearing collapse, arms wrapped to support her as she bent backwards, but found her utterly without need of it. I see the end of no life but the lives you claim. You will find no silence. She pauses, looks at me for a moment, and even in my dream state, it feels she is startlingly alive. Peace, possibly. Silence, no. This cannot be. I'm holding her too tight, supporting one side of her fully. As her legs collapse, she ignores her collapsed form, holding her delicate hands upward, facing between us, one palm seated into the other, as though the horrible prophecy she uttered were an offering rather than a curse. 
The whisper grew impossibly loud, crashed against my ears. You of all of us should not be speaking about what cannot be abomination. The fates have never cut your strand. I took her useless hands cupped with nothing. Nothing. Seething rage overcomes me and I am unable to control my urges. Her arms are pinned between us, flattening the mockery of a gift as I drag her neck up to my height. She stares kindly into my eyes as I defile her perfect neck. I wake with the image of her perfect naff smile, her still baffling kindness seared into my vision. For millennia that smile has haunted me better than any scream could have. She was a worthy creature, a servant of her gods. I should not have killed her and I almost wish I was capable of paying a price. Perhaps I am. Perhaps that is why Cassie is gone. A few days later, I'm on my way home from yet another assignment. I walk slowly, calmly, enjoying the beautiful day. I'm never sent twice in a day. It's not my erstwhile master's way. So for the remainder of the day, I know I will not receive another task. I also know I have no messenger packet expected today. This frees me somewhat from the perpetual worry. Small favours, I suppose. The magnolias are in bloom. Heavy branches arch with purpose, leaves and blossoms flutter. Nature's lurid display remains timelessly refreshing, and I breathe in the heady scent. A useless flash of guilt for enjoying what cannot be shared with Cassie destroys my leisure, and I find a more brisk pace. I reach the building that houses my condominium. The elderly doorman opens the door for me with his usual degree of slight nervousness. He's held that position since before television went to colour, so I suppose he stopped wondering a generation ago why my appearance never differs. Since I own the top three floors of the building and he makes a king's ransom for his silence, I am unworried. We nod to each other, and then the unexpected, a messenger packet has arrived rush. I try not to get too excited, but my blood is rising before I can make it up the stairs, although I have come to loathe these missives over the last few years. Once safely ensconded in the office, I tear open the envelope I've received from Patrick. I pull out the picture of which I've seen too many variations. Her sallow, filthy face, beside a date and time stamp. Her perfect grace unmarred, despite that she's a shadow of herself. Despite that nearly every picture has freshly healing wounds, deeper circles around the eyes. How hollow she must feel, unfed for so long. I worry she will have sunk irretrievably into the hunger before I can devise her release. I review the analysis of the photo. Prints, none. Trace DNA, none. Nothing unusual about the printing process. No printer's marks. Full, spe full spectral analysis, nada. A long list of tests with unsatisfactory results. I pull out the cream-coloured letter in its analysis, and I am greeted with something new. The results page is longer than usual. That is why Patrick has sent it to me on his day off. I almost can't believe my eyes. This day suddenly sets itself aside as one of my eternal favourites. I revel for a moment in this reward for my enduring endless patience. Somehow, upon trace analysis of this particular letter with modern contraptions, traces of ink from another document become visible in but one spectrum on the back of the page under enhancement. I can no longer contain my excitement. I can't, I cannot stare hard enough at the resulting blur. 
The ghost of the other page was picked up. It appears, based on analysis, that this other document lays out the divorce decree between Mr. Shelby Wickham and Mrs. Delilah Wickham. The names of the Wickham's lawyers, various parties, and a judge also sit on the page. I try doing a few hours of internet research. I hate the internet, but it has made accessing information simpler. After a time, I give up realizing my own limitations, and send a missive off to Patrick to get the research completed for me. I know my weaknesses, and the use of modern technologies is among them. I need to delegate to be effective here. This may take days. And it was hard to trust even Patrick with this one. Finally, feeling some hope, I reflect on our circumstances for a moment. And what a droll circumstance this would be, were it not so tragic. Cassie and I, who have no choice but to survive being under the heel of an unknown someone whose lifespan will fleet by like so much chaff in the wind. My master had enough gall to attempt to rule over not one, but two of the oldest creatures in existence. How could he not have known it would greatly shorten his time here on Earth? Was it worth it for him? The machinations and the borrowed mastery. I begin planning for my dearest Cassandra's future needs, hopeful, for the first time in six years, eleven months. I order another false blood drive through a particularly shady source. It's expensive, but good help is never cheap. I will need to stock up for when she comes home. A plan forms. I sip lightly on my dinner. However much of the substance drain past, all time spent apart from her feels an eternity. I spent a moment savouring my plan. I would shower her in luxuries anew, grander than even during the Enlightenment. I sleep deeper than I have in years, giddy with renewed, bubbling hope. It's been six days and waiting for each day's messenger bag is near agony. My patience has grown thin. I've had to kill two more people and I'm hoping I don't have to keep doing this much longer. Today's packet contains a thick response from Patrick and the company. They've done a marvellous job of researching everyone. I like to think the good work they've done is out of pride rather than terror. I peruse the thick stack of information gathered and read over the synopsis letter. According to the hacker he hired, our most suspicious person is the judge. Neither of the divorcing couples seems particularly wealthy or powerful or behaves suspiciously. The amount of resources it will require to have seized and held Cassie this long requires unusual means. Lawyers might weld enough power, but they're usually agents for others. They've compiled the full official and illicit lists of clients for each lawyer. I flip the page to review the day-to-day -day for either of them. I discount both, and all but one client who is very unlikely to be my culprit. The papacy and I came to an agreement long ago. The silent predator within me whispers the judge's key. The couple in the throes of marital disharmony were throwing lawyers about like missiles, totally engrossed in petty disputes. Neither were likely to be my nemesis. The judge? Well, he has power, connections, resources, and inflated self-worth to effect such an egregious and frankly precocious act of imprisoning an immortal. My unwanted master needed the kind of hubris that judgeship can foster and intelligence enough to have hidden himself from me this long. The Honourable George Montrose, indeed. As omnipotent as he might believe himself, Judge George Montrose has never met potency. I vow silently without witnesses that he will shortly feel the full wrath of the most lethal predator still wandering this godless world.
I must not rush. I remind myself the most pressing question remains how do I ascertain if Montrose was part of a cabal or acted alone. I sit back against the leather of my chair and realize that I need to calm myself. I must not misstep. Montrose's fate was decided, but Cassie's mattered most. It's been a few days and I've been doing ceaseless research into Montrose. I've also heard back from my hacker whose information shows that the judge has quite a few secret holdings. Also that he enters some chat rooms on a private server that are highly locked down with names that indicate a secret society. I still don't know enough to act, but a plan is forming. Whatever course of action it will require Marcus, my sire. Although there can be no laws that contain an immortal, we have found that conflict between ourselves does not behoove us. To do what I must without a parley would be a violation of an unspoken code. I've never known a seal contract a decree as profound and binding as a nod between immortals. The line rings and he picks up. Hello. Marcus's tinny voice pleases my ear. Even through the phone he sounds surprised. It has been quite a while. It's me. He laughs in delight, and I can tell he wishes I would call on him more often. I explain the situation, and he bemoans Cassie's state, offering the obligatory assistance. That's kind, but I won't require your presence. I just want to warn you that I will be taking an unusual measure. He sounds on edge. Elaborate if you will. I can almost hear the muscle between his shoulders tense, then grasp on the phone tightening. I'm sure you'll agree it's the wisest course of action and I explain what I must do. I give my immediate, uncouched assenting and blessing. He didn't even pause. I am stunned silent for a moment. This will not be forgotten, Marcus. Cassie means nothing to you. Not so, because she means the world to you, my sweet Lysander. Hearing my sire's kind words are a balm and a boon, yet they bring old conflicts to the surface. I distract myself over the next full fortnight by stalking the judge, his circle, and preparing. I know full well not to change my pattern, to continue to follow through on any more assignations. It's harder than usual. Every time I must kill a stranger for my begrudging master, I find myself growing more impatient than Montrose's silver temples are the ones I pierce. With each target, I find myself more urgently desirous that it be Montrose and his cabal, whose breath I am stilling. The many deaths he's ordered are new stirred and quiet in my mind. Their faces rise within my sleeping thoughts. The banker's boy, the courtesan, the bridegroom and the young inspector come to mind most often, and I ponder to myself why those faces arrive most. If one had a candle of an exceeding clarity of beauty, would you snuff it? or watch its essence slowly change and become. Each empty shell is one less stagnant husk I must make. Now that I am almost there, each one feels as much my doing as his. My urgency in ending the existence of the cabal heightens. I find myself almost rushing, and it takes practiced patience to quell myself. No good could come of dancing the step too hastily. Unprecedented since my youth, I find I must calm myself several times each day now. A forcible stillness that nearly crushes thought from me. Metaphor after illusion after allegory I recite to myself. Poor planning has dashed more ships than any storm. A stitch in time saves lives. I chide myself. It becomes hard not to rush fangs out. Full display of intimidation and power and throw myself upon Montrose. Yet I must will myself into mastery. Take each action with extreme deliberation, for Cassie's sake. 
He is merely one head of the beast. This hydra must not be leapt on unprepared. As my surveillance pays off and the full scene unfolds to me, the judge turns out to be exceedingly well protected. It matters not. Only his anonymity kept him from being killed at any other point during our six-year history. And that is, glory of glories, gone now. However, any connection between Montrose and Cassie's whereabouts eludes me. I nearly doubt my gut instinct that he is truly my culprit. I carefully catalogue Montrose's known associates. Finally, by day 12 of ceaseless study, I have divined everything there might be to know about him. Who are his confidants? Who might know where Cassie is held? And who I might use to gain entrance to the inevitable sanctum? A lucky happenstance. In one minor meeting at a mid-priced restaurant, I see a recognisable shade of cream document pass between the judge and another who tucks it into a suitcase under his desk and slides it under his seat to the booth next door. I follow the man who has the cream letter to another man I've never seen. This one seems like he might be the key. The pendulum has swung loose, tumbling towards Judge Montrose. I head home messenger for research on the man I've found and bathe in hot water per modern custom. Then dress myself for going out. The following day my research is complete. Mr. Andrew Petrov, the receptionist stands, extending a pale, smooth arm towards me, her tailored business vestments and supple youth are meant to speak of the power of her master, the eternal display of holders of temporary wealth. This particularly striking beauty is second to the man who is secretly second to Montrose and the Cabal. John Baldash is a powerful man, but not entirely shielded. He dives deep into his own pools, running his own concerns directly, which places him as more vulnerable than the others. My observations have shown that Baldash likely holds a position just subordinate to Montrose in the secret society. Mortals seem overly fond of cabals and grow too confident in their combined power. I could name vast caverns filled with the detritus of such one society, long burnt to ash. Not by me, but gone all the same. This cabal would never have caught my eye or my wrath except that they stumbled across Cassie. With her they've made themselves more powerful, but also far less enduring. I slide my eyes across the receptionist's polished, empty ones, then answer. Call me Andrew. It feels like a lie. I so rarely hear it spoken. Well, it is a lie, despite being legally true these days. When requesting this meeting, I chose to use the name Montrose might recognize, allowing me to learn whether Mr. John Baldash is aware of the full scope, or I am working against a cell-structured network. Impatience boils up within me and I quelch it. Follow me, please. The receptionist turns, and I follow the nubile swaying of her behind, all promised sex and disdain. We enter the office of my prey, where I seat myself in the obvious spot, a modern couch with tight seams and steel beams. The entire room is utterly as expected. I shake my head at the proffered alcohol, and the secretary leaves a whispered door behind her. Mr. Baldash walks over, sits casually across from me, then rises to his seat slightly to extend a practiced handshake. The endless, unchanging dance of progress. I follow the expected protocol, then study him as he explains the offerings of his firm. His gestures and postures are smooth, elegant, and stink of confidence. His heart rate steady, his eyes don't dart or evade, and nothing about him speaks of guile. After reaching my conclusions, 
I held a hand up to stop him from slinging another pitch. Apologies. You seem to think I am here as a client. I am not. He ceased chattering, brow furrowed. Then what brings you here? Cassie. His heart rate leaps suddenly. Fear strikes his eyes like lightning. Are you him? I nod gently, gesturing with one finger to remain seated. My stillness might have been easily misconstrued, but this man knows too much to do anything else but comply. I take his measure for a moment, allowing him to take mine, then continue. I don't intend to harm you, but will if you make it necessary. Can I trust you? He nods. Good, I must know why you... I tick his virtues off on my fingers, who seem so natively benevolent, who donate to charity in excess of what might ease taxation, who seem such a brilliant mind, who do not seem to enjoy partaking of any of the primary vices of wealth. Why would you stand for even a bet this treatment of my beloved? I tap on the desk between us lightly. I would like you to explain, please. He crumples in his seat. He owns me. Who owns you? Same as you, he whispers it, his voice clamped with shame. Good, he's opted for the truth. Perhaps I can free two unwilling prisoners for the price of one. What kind of blackmail could he have on you? You don't seem the type for a tryst. I would have thought you too honourable for murder. I find it unlikely that I would misjudge you so agrariously. His eyes take on a pleading tone, but he continues, I'm not supposed to talk about it. You will speak. He looks at my eyes, nods, then looks away. Um, it's my nephew. Old tears well up in his voice. He was high. He, he chokes on the words, but says them anyhow. Drove, anyway. Killed a girl. Open and shut case. My sister tried to cover it up, but implicated herself. The judge holds it all. He owns me, my sister, her son. Plus he holds correspondence on it. Claims I could be charged in an accessory. He owns many, just as he owns us both. I am not owned, just controlled. What was the girl's name? Excuse me? You heard me. Lil. Lillian Brown. She was visiting the university here from out of state. You looked into her. You care. So why not let the chips fall where they may? The girl deserves her justice. He looks worried. I would never have expected those words from someone like you. Human life having value to you. But why do you want that? I am no use to you if I do that. What would you do if you were given the power to destroy his evidence? If you could simply walk into his sanctum, take the files, destroy them without any consequence to you, if nothing could hurt you? I would do so immediately. He's dirty. Would you allow your nephew to face his crimes? I... I don't know. I'd like to think there was another way out. There isn't. Would you wish immortality upon yourself just to get free of him? His stunned silence greeted me. I waited. I had time. Are you honestly asking what I think you're asking? His shock was real. Of course I would. In a heartbeat, what does it entail? You ask for honesty, so I will not mince words. Immortality is a curse more than a blessing. 
You could never bear offspring in the usual way. The overwhelming problems and passions you feel now inevitably fade to insignificance. But your flaws do not. You remain you. Your consequences remain with you. Outliving anything you presently hate or love is not easy. You will be altered forever, becoming... I take a moment to shift, savour the rarity of someone, anyone, to speak to on this oft-pondered subject. Another kind of creature, but you remain yourself. Of possible benefit to you, having the weaknesses of millennia to do good works. After a time, I would not try to bind you to me. You could begin anew anywhere you chose. I would not own you, although there is an expected order to abide by. He pondered, looking out the window. Would I have to kill people to survive? Not if you choose not to. I've got a cache of sustenance more or less medically sourced. If you prefer, I can show you how to sup without damaging your source. While humanity may revile us, is there any other creature that can claim they never have to kill for their food? I paused for effect. You may slip up here or there, and there are times when it is hard to contain the urge to decimate. But you would not be the beast portrayed in folk arts. Can I get time to think about it? Half the day, I stand smoothing my suit against my form. Believe me when I say that I am being charitable in offering you these twelve hours. Know this, John, as much as I respect you, should you decide to refuse my offer. I held my hand against the desk with force, focusing my words at him with an intensity I rarely displayed, and left the rest unsaid. He nodded. Whatever you choose, you will help me free Cassie, or you will die at my hand. I smile. I stand, and look at him dead in the eyes. I offer you this option first, since I do not wish to kill one so worthy. He gulped, spoke softly. I assumed as much. His face has fallen heavy with a hard choice. I am through the whispering door and past the receptionist pat goodbye before she can stand again to see me out. I would come to him at his home tonight. I already knew what his answer would be when I asked my question again. No mortal turns down his fate. The next day I have a schoolteacher to kill. It ends as it must in a shattered frame slumped over the stacks. I look down upon the glassy eyes no longer distracted by thought. I vow that this unremarkable woman will be the last unnecessary death by proxy I am forced to perform. I hurry home, worrying about John's transition. I find him slightly improved state of repose, gasping in air between gulps, with suction bags of plasma everywhere. The giddy first days as an immortal are powerful. His change has me wanting to reminisce, but there isn't time. I had settled on allowing him to tear through most of my supply of plasma to speed the process. I am fed up with wasted time. His transition must go as quickly as possible, so I am glad when the plasma I ordered for Cassie arrives with the day's messenger's hall. I place another order and throw the entire lot in front of John. A few hours later, his eyes are dilated. I recall this state, recall what it feels like, veins thrumming, head a-boil with smatterings of thoughts. I give him focus, speak softly to him of his new sister Cassie, her impending rescue. I lull him with soft words in his ear of how he is the only one who can help her, 
As his sire, I bear a strong pull during the transition, and I intend to leverage my coercion to its full effect while it exists, much as Marcus once did with me, though to different ends. John's head turns softly towards the words I speak as a child towards a lullaby, and the sound of my soft words of vengeance against the judge, fresh in his mind, suck down another packet of sustenance, he falls asleep. When he wakes, I approach. John, it's time. The bargain. John looks to me, smiling. I would love to, but come on, man. I don't look or feel the same anymore. I'm, he laughs exuberantly, practically a god now. Look at us, Andrew. Really, look. He flips backwards, hoops like a Moberian. They won't let me in looking like this. He smooths his shirt. The man had no real concept of the gods, or he'd make no reference. I sigh. I know it feels that way, but the girl at your desk will never see a difference. Montrose will never see a difference. Anyone you would normally be around, even a woman you've bedded, would not see a difference. Human senses aren't keen enough. If you behave as they do, move as they do, you could live out a decade without anyone suspecting. He rushed over to me, embraced me. Could I stay? Could I take care of my family? I cannot help but let a little exasperation into my voice. Do you want to? Do I want to? He looks slightly worried. I don't know. I grasp him firmly by the shoulders. His thoughts are dispersed like so many autumn leaves across water, utterly without control. Leave it for another time. You can resolve that question later. You have all the time to decide, but it will do you nothing if you don't take the judge's power back. All of it. Files. Blackmail. We must right this wrong. We must fetch Cassie. Cassie, yes, I know what I need to do. He gulps down another packet of plasma. I placed a hand against his chest, closed my eyes, breathing deep. What are you doing? He's closed his eyes too, but his eyebrows are up, inquisitive. Do you feel it? I'm hoping to imbue you with a little of my own power and strength, that you might easily accomplish your task tonight. It is bravado, but I will it to work. If there can be magic in the world, we need some of it tonight. I recall the oracle smile, and I am certain there is magic. I am surprised to find myself mumbling a house prayer I last spoke when I was mortal three thousand years earlier. I may be imagining things, but it almost seems as though a rush of something powerful passes through me. He smiles and hugs me tightly. New ones are strange, but it has been years since I was touched in affection and my wellspring of emotional response is surprising. The idea of adding a third to our small family chafes a little less. I am hoping that John's company will improve Cassie's and my little family. I already know I will, at worst, abide him, and I found myself hoping to gain a brother, not just a brother-in-arms. John is leading the charge. He knows the organization, having managed it for years. I drive to the judge's house, and John lunges out of the door before I can explain to him what to expect. When he emerges, he is towing a decent-sized wall safe, and his chest is knitting back together. I pop the trunk quickly, and he pours blood all over the driveway. He slams the safe into the trunk and practically leaps over the car, climbing back into the passenger's seat, his wounds still closing. How did it go? He jams a plasma bag in his mouth and talks about it as he sucks it down. I walked in, left the judge untouched as you requested. I yanked the wall safe out of the wall, came back here to you, went exactly to plan except, of course, the bodyguard. He shot me lots and tasted like cologne. Pretty gross. That hurts. He pointed to the chest wound, which is nearly done in mending itself. Yes, not exactly a bloodless coup, but it's hardly worthwhile for you if he does not live to see his humiliations at your hand. 
It is expected of the young that their behaviour doesn't quite match their permanent countenance for a brief time. The state of bliss of near nirvana usually only lasts a few years. It will fade with time, and John will return to himself, but more importantly, to a state where regrets might catch up with him. I hope he won't have done anything too foolish for his own sake, but I cannot think of it over long before thoughts of Cassie invade. I should say something, though. Try not to kill anyone undeserving, John. I pull a spare shirt and some wipes from my satchel, handing them over. He grins again, throwing his shirt out the car window and wipes himself clean while we drive to the judge's bank. I stay in the running car, looking across the lot to the automated teller. In very short order, he sprints back out. He heaves a safe deposit box, bent near to breaking into the back seat before clambering back into his seat, just as the guard changes on the front door towards us. They're already in motion and out of the lot before he spots the car. John whoops loud as the thrill overcomes him. Wind in his hair. He has his head and his shoulders out the window. He directs me to a seedy back street, then into a boring industrial building complex. He calms a little as we drive and then indicates where I should pull over. To my chagrin, my mate is being held hostage in an utterly unremarkable business park without any storefronts. Smart of the judge, I would never have found her in this beige concrete cube park, as effective a camouflage as jungle. My senses thrum, knowing she is near and we will reunite shortly. Ha! This is so awesome! Alex, is it always like this? John is riding high on the power of his newfound inability to experience consequence. He has discovered his power, but has not yet felt regret. He has become dangerous to everything in his path, and I hope he doesn't behave so rashly that he spends decades in remorse. I decide the greater good must be served. I try to speak through the buzz John is experiencing, and I used steady, hushed tones, trying to sway him as best I can. For some, John, stay calm. Try to keep hold of yourself. Try not to do unnecessary harm to others if you have any intention of staying in New York. John is scratching his ear. I can tell he isn't listening. He is the linchpin here, and I need him. I do not like losing the upper hand, and I am not going to point out to him again how thoroughly I depend on him here. John is too young and inexperienced to leverage his power against me, and perhaps he will remain as kind as he has been in life, but I am not going to remind him. Don't worry, Alex. I set the alarm codes myself. The man who spent previous Saturday in a soup kitchen thrusts a pocket of plasma into his blood-stained suit inside his pocket and walks into the building with me, hurrying to keep up beside him. An agonizing eleven minutes later, I am finally holding her. The blanket-wrapped fawn we're supporting cannot be my Cassie, but it turns, and I can see her face. John is having to support Cassie's weight almost entirely because I am an emotional wreck. I can see that she has become quite frail. We are all drenched in blood. Cassie's pallor was improved from the most recent proof-of-life note because my new protégé was thoughtful enough that the plasma bag in his breast pocket had actually been for Cassie. I smile at John and he beams at me, all exhilaration. Then I have eyes only for her. Another plasma bag reaches her lips as we arrive in the car and I see it handed to her. I lifted a helper into the black seat. So light, like a bird. I realize I am utterly unprepared for her recovery. She's never been in the state before that I know of. I am utterly unwilling to release Cassie from my arms. We shove the safe deposit box onto the floor and curl up together on the leather seat. We have become unhurried in our movements, and I know it will be safe to savor this moment. I hold Cassie against me in the back seat. I gesture to John that he should drive and throw the car keys to him. We didn't even break a sweat, man! 
And Alex, your girlfriend's really great too. Soon as we scanned the room, she understood. Never had teamwork like that. The tires squeal as John starts driving back to my place, excitedly recounting the mundane details of the rescue while neither of us listened. I offer Cassie another of the bags of plasma. She holds it, but does not yet drink. Instead, she looks up to me and my heart grows measures in my chest, knowing she chooses me over sustenance even now, even weak in their delirium, just as I once chose her deep in a cave in Delphi. Lysander, my love, she brushes her trembling hand against my cheek. I knew you'd find a way. Always. I hope you liked this story. If you did, please like, subscribe, tell all your friends about our podcast. And find out more at hallucinationcafe.com if you'd like to submit a story to the podcast. Please email me. Thank you so much for listening. <music>